Hey there, you are listening to Currents in Religion, a podcast brought to you by the Department of Religion at Baylor University and by Baylor University Press. I'm Zen Hess. Thanks for listening today. The hallways of Tidwell Bible Building are normally bustling during the weekdays, but not now. Now, students sit in classrooms quietly, studiously, poring over notes with classmates in impromptu study groups. The final day of classes was Wednesday. Now, it's finals time. That means the semester is coming to an end. Just like this season of Currents and Religion, and just like 2023. So in this episode, we're going to take a moment to reflect on the year by revisiting some interesting, important, and otherwise intriguing religious news stories from the year. I'll share some interesting polls that released this year and recall a few important news stories. Time is short, so I won't dwell in details here. I just want to call to mind stories that deserve some more of our attention. As I scrolled through the news sections of several publications, I tried to identify some stories I thought our listeners would care about. So many of them have to do with Christianity and American Christianity specifically. But you can help fill in the gaps. Let us know what stories you would have included in your list by engaging the question on Spotify or by interacting with us on X, formerly known as Twitter, I should mention that the views discussed or represented in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of Baylor University, the Religion Department at Baylor University, or Baylor University Press. All right, here we go. So what did we learn about religion and religious practice this year? A Gallup report released this year asked whether religion is good for you or not. This global study is based on 10 years of data from over 1.5 million people. The study itself concludes that, quote, on a number of well-being measures, people who are religious have better well-being than people who are not, end quote. Of course, the question is, how do you measure well-being on a global scale? The study did this by asking each participant nine questions and asking them to rank their responses on a scale of 1 to 100. Ultimately, the study found that religiosity related to improved well-being in the following four categories. Positive experiences, social life, optimism, and community basics. Religiosity has a relationship to worse well-being in terms of negative experiences and personal health and there appeared to be no meaningful difference between religious and non-religious people in life evaluation and local economic confidence questions. So overall, this study seems to show that religion itself is correlated with greater well-being globally. The worst well-being categories run parallel to other studies, like the study that showed that Methodist ministers feel worse and worry more than they did a decade ago. And I think many religious folks will be quite surprised that there is no significant difference between them and non-religious folks in their evaluation of quality of life. A second study from Pew Research Center explored religion among Asian Americans. 
This study reveals that the number of Asian American Christians is declining and that the number of nuns, that is, those who are not affiliated with any religion, is increasing. This trend is not surprising because it resembles the U.S. public's decreasing affiliation with religious groups. But the study finds that many Asian American nuns are not necessarily anti-religious or disconnected from religious traditions. The study reports that, quote, 40% of Asian Americans say they feel close to some religious tradition for reasons aside from religion. For example, just 11% of Asian American adults say their religion is Buddhism, but 21% feel close to Buddhism for other reasons such as family background or culture, end quote. Religion is a complicated social phenomenon. A poll by Ipsos reinforces this complexity. A study covering almost 20,000 people from 26 countries reveals interesting geographical and generational divides on questions of faith. Here's a quote summarizing one of the study's findings. Generational differences vary when it comes to not having a religion, that is, identifying oneself as either atheist, agnostic, or just spiritual. Three countries show Gen Zers less likely than boomers to say they have no religion by at least 10 points, including Sweden and Germany, by more than 15 points. But nine countries show the reverse pattern, including South Korea and Italy, by more than 20 points. In other words, globally, faith among younger generations is in some flux. Cultures the world over are reckoning with faith in notably different ways. It's best not to oversimplify these sorts of things. And speaking of younger generations, the last study I want to share with you looks at the state of religion and young people in 2023. This study from the Springtide Research Institute explores faith among Gen Z Americans. This study found that people of varying faiths and no faith at all affirmed their own experience of the sacred. The interesting insight in this study is that it shows us the broad definition sacred has among people in Gen Z. Religion News Service interviewed Trisha Bruce, the director of Springtide, about the study. Here's a quote from her. Certainly, we might expect young people to tell us, yes, I've experienced the sacred when I attended a religious service or in prayer, and they do. But they also told us, I experienced the sacred in nature. I experienced the sacred when I got into college. I experienced the sacred in virtual connection. Creative spaces that we may not think of as sacred themselves or as religious, or we may not materially construct as such, young people are telling us that in fact, that's where the sacred lives for them. End quote. Once again, religion is complicated, but young people are largely open to spiritual experiences. The question is how they understand sacred and how their spiritual experiences will continue to shape the religious landscape of America and the world moving forward. The links to these four studies are in the episode description. I'd encourage you to go and read them carefully for yourselves. Now, time for a quick break, and then we'll remember some important news headlines from the year.
Before getting back to our review of news headlines from 2023, I wanted to tell you about a new book from Baylor University Press that I think you might like. The book is The Fire in the Cloud by Chris E. W. Green. As the blurb says, this book presents a non-supersessionist biblical Christology developed from close readings of Israel's scripture. It's the second book in a trilogy on Christology by Green. In this volume, Green tracks the recurrent and interwoven themes of exile, journey, and return across the canonical order, beginning with the story of Cain's exile and ending with the homecoming of Naomi and Ruth. He examines crucial passages and their significance in later Jewish and Christian interpretations, reckoning honestly with the history of Christian anti-Jewishness and reminding us of the good news that the nations are being grafted into the people of God. Ellen Davis says this about the book. In prose as pointed as it is poetic, Green argues against the twin forms of Christian arrogance, biblicism and supersessionism that render a flat, sentimentalized figure of Jesus and set the church in arrogant opposition to Judaism. You can find a link in the episode description to learn more about the book. All right, let's remember some of the good, the bad, and the ugly of 2023 religion news. We'll start with a few things that really sparked people's interest this year. And if I can indulge myself here a little bit, we'll start with something that really sparked my interest as a New Testament scholar. In early September, a little piece of papyri referred to as P. Oxy 5575 was published. This little fragment found in an ancient trash heap with thousands of papyri scraps, contains a collection of sayings from Jesus. As one scholar playfully commented on social media, wake up, babe, new gospel just dropped. Two things are really interesting about this little fragment. First, it's possibly from the second century, making it one of only 10 to 12 second century manuscripts that we have that contain gospel literature. Second, this little scrap combines sayings from Matthew and Luke and the apocryphal Gospel of Thomas. This is something new that we, that we haven't seen before. So this publication obviously stirred up interest among New Testament scholars, of course, but only time will tell if or how this little scrap will shed light on how early Christians wrote and read early gospel literature. Okay, story number two. In February, a little town in Kentucky became the focus of global attention as revival broke out following a normal chapel service at Asbury University. For 13 days, people sang and prayed and preached continuously. 50,000 worshipers or onlookers are estimated to have visited Wilmore, Kentucky over those two weeks. Religion News Service reported people came from Finland, Portugal, the Philippines, California, Oregon, Florida, Hawaii, Georgia, Michigan, Minnesota, New York, Texas, and Canada, among other states and countries. The revival at Asbury was attributed with inspiring similar revival-like events at other campuses, including Baylor. This story sparked debates among Christians of all stripes, some who were thrilled at what they perceived as an outbreak of the Spirit. Revivals like this after all, have been a feature of Christian religious life for quite some time. 
There were, of course, others who dismissed the revival, supposing it would lead to no real change or transformation or social justice. It will be difficult to discern how this event influences American Christianity, but it is sure to have a lasting effect on many who participated in it. Speaking of Christian universities like Asbury, this year we saw the continuation of a trend exacerbated by COVID-19. Since the pandemic, nearly 20 Christian colleges have shuttered or radically adjusted their operations. Most recently, Nyack College closed after 140 years, and King's College in New York did not hold classes in the fall of 2023, but they described this decision, including layoffs of all the faculty, as an operational pause. Now, colleges are closing around the country, whether Christian or not. Higher education itself is in a tumultuous period for a number of reasons. But the closure of long-standing Christian institutions is sure to have a ripple effect on Christian higher education and Christianity in America more generally. Speaking of institutional tumult, there is nothing new nor rare about it for the church. Various controversies and ongoing debates have consistently appeared in news headlines this year. Stories of abuse of various kinds are seemingly endless. They come from every corner of the church in America and abroad. There have been high-profile cases, uh, especially worth mentioning in Anglican expressions of Christianity here in America. So the generally conservative Anglican Church in North America has a bishop named Stuart Rook, who has been accused of, quote, conduct giving just cause for scandal or offense, including the abuse of ecclesiastical power, end quote. The accusations against him include mishandling of sexual abuse allegations and letting people with known histories of predatory behavior continue to work in his parishes without notifying the congregations of their histories. The generally progressive Episcopal Church likewise dealt with accountability issues among their leadership. On August 31st, 55 Episcopal bishops released a letter stating that they were quote, angered and deeply concerned about the perception or the reality that bishops get a free pass on behavioral issues. This coincided to some extent with Bishop Prince Singh's resignation, which eventually came after his two sons and ex-wife accused him of domestic abuse. International House of Prayer in Kansas City has had congregants staging sit-ins during their prayer services after allegations of sexual and spiritual abuse surfaced, against Mike Bickle. In November, Douglas Wilson's teaching and his institutions came under renewed scrutiny for the ways they create cultures where abuse is justified or papered over. The list could go on. One religion news service article quotes Stephanie Crabiel, executive director of Into Account, as saying, it's as common as dirt. For many of these stories, we have also seen lay people organize and act in ways that call their institutions to maintain a higher standard, one that should have been maintained all along. Several notable headlines about women in ministry and LGBT inclusion are also worth mentioning. In October, the Catholic Church held a synod on synodality at the Vatican. The synod gathered bishops, priests, religious, and lay men and women for nearly a month to discuss primarily synodality, that is, 
quote, the process of fraternal collaboration and discernment within the church. Secondarily, the synod took up some hot-button issues like LGBT inclusion, women in ministry, celibacy for priests, and abuse within the church. At the end of the month, they produced a 40-page report. While they never intended to change the church's positions on doctrine or morality, the report's conclusions may signal something about the future of how the Catholic Church will engage with these issues. On LGBT issues, the report seems to anticipate a more conservative future for the church. On celibacy and women's ministry, there seems to have been little movement one way or another. We'll have to see what happens when they gather again in the years to come. Sponsored by St. Phoebe Center, a gathering of American Orthodox Christian theologians and scholars sought to prepare a practical plan for reinvigorating the practice of ordaining deaconesses in the Orthodox Church. This is a practice which the Orthodox Church never formally banned. The plan was not accepted officially, but the meeting did have the blessing of the Orthodox leadership, including the ecumenical patriarch. In June, the Southern Baptist Church rejected an appeal from Saddleback Church, who had voted to oust because of their acceptance of women in lead and preaching pastoral roles. The Southern Baptist Church had moved in February to disfellowship Saddleback for ordaining female pastors. In his appeal, Rick Warren called on the Southern Baptists gathered for the annual meeting to, quote, act like a Southern Baptist, who have historically agreed to disagree on dozens of doctrines in order to act on a common mission, end quote. The appeal was unsuccessful. Finally, the Church of England sought to advance plans for special services to bless same-sex couples on a trial basis. This created substantial controversy as more progressive members of the Anglican Communion felt it did not go far enough and more conservative members felt it went too far. The plans for blessing same-sex couples were rejected by the Global South Fellowship of Anglican Churches, which may represent as much as 75% of Anglicans worldwide. In fact, the group stated that they no longer recognize Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, as the, quote, first among equals leader of the global communion, end quote. Relatedly, in May, Archbishop Stephen Kazimba of Uganda, one of the Global South Fellowship bishops who rejected Justin Welby, said he was, quote, grateful, quote, for Uganda's newly ratified anti-LGBTQ plus law, which included lifelong prison sentences and in some cases the death penalty. Kazimba said his diocese opposes the death penalty, I should note. Instead, they support lifelong prison sentences. All of these stories show how churches in America and globally continue to wrestle with questions of gender and sexuality in light of the mission of the church. The final story I want to mention is undoubtedly the most significant story of the last months of 2023. In October, Hamas launched an attack on Israel, which included bombardment as well as kidnapping and horrifically brutal attacks on civilians. Israel has since launched a counteroffensive, which has been increasingly criticized, especially due to the high number of civilians who have been killed. At the time of recording this episode, an estimated 15,000 civilians have been killed with more than 5,000 of them being children. The present violence has displaced and dismayed millions. It has also resulted in negative responses worldwide. For instance, both anti-Jewish and anti-Islamic threats and acts of violence have increased in America. 
while there is no end to the violence in sight, calls for a ceasefire have grown louder and more numerous. It is a somber way to end the year. Palestinian Christian leaders have called for solemn celebrations of Christmas, canceling their normal festive celebrations in Bethlehem. For them, it is an act of solidarity with the people of Gaza. This ends our fall 2023 season. We'll be back in the spring with more episodes. In the meantime, you can listen back to some of our other episodes and share them with your friends. Thanks for making Currents a part of your day and your year. All the best from us here at the Baylor Religion Department and Baylor University Press. Until next time, take care.